Let's pray together. Father, we do pray. Lord, may it be that they may forget the channel, seeing only him. Father, we want to become all things to all men so that we might, by all means, save some. Lord, I pray that you would use this word to make us fruitful in gospel ministry. Make us more bold, make us more loving, make us more effective. So, Father, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we pray you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in the fourth grade, my family and I lived in a little bitty town in East Texas called Deweyville. I only lived a short walk from the Sabine River, which was the border between Texas and Louisiana. And our house was surrounded by woods, and we had these three ponds that were just over our back fence where I used to swim carelessly with the water moccasins in these little ponds. This, this whole place was like a little boy's playground. And in the summertime, I was outside whenever there was daylight. I was barefoot. I was shirtless at all times. I rode my bike everywhere, and I pretty much could go wherever I wanted to in town, wherever I could pedal my bike to, there I went. And I was in charge of my bike. If the chain came off, I had to fix it. If the tire went flat, I had to fix it. And one day I did have a flat tire, and me and a buddy of mine decided to go to the gas station to fill it up. And I was eager to use the high-pressure uh, uh, air um, machine because it was so much faster than the, the hand pumps that you usually use. But it didn't occur to me that high-pressure air could be a problem because that's just not something you think about when you're in the fourth grade. So I knelt down next to my bicycle and I fastened the hose to the tire and let the air rush into the tire. But when you're leaning down like that, your face is pretty close to the tire. And I didn't know it, but my tire had a hole in it. And the high pressure pushed the inner tube through a hole in the tire and it exploded in my face which was just inches away from the tire. I, it was so close, I was disoriented. I couldn't see. My eyes were burning like crazy, and it wouldn't stop. My mom had to come and pick me up and the bicycle and, and take us home. She couldn't help my, help my eyes stop burning. And so we just had to go to the doctor where I found out that I had a corneal abrasion. It turned out when the air blew out through the tire, it blew dirt right into my, my eyeballs, and it just lacerated the, the, the cornea. And it would heal. Obviously, I'm not blind, but, but it would take a while. Well, guess what I never get, did again as a result of that? I didn't air up my tire with my face right next to the tire with a high-pressure pump. When you're a child, there are certain things that you do that you don't do when you're an adult. When you're a child... You'll try to eat the whole one-pound bag of M&Ms. When you're an adult, you learn that it's probably not a good idea to do that. When you're a child, you like to stand up in the back of the pickup truck while it's barreling full speed down the road. 
When you're an adult, you realize it's probably better to be safe than to lean against the wind in the back of a truck. It's a normal part of moving from childhood to adulthood to learn that there are many things you can do, but would be better if you didn't do. What happens to a person if they never learn that there are certain things that you have a right to do, but that wisdom says you shouldn't do? What happens is they end up with stomach aches after too many M&Ms. They fall out of the back of trucks and they have tires exploding in their face. That's what happens. In short, they stay in a perpetual mode of immaturity, which keeps, keeps them away from higher goods because of a childish fixation on immediate interests. And the ability to obtain higher goods by setting aside immediate interests is is a sign of maturity, and it's precisely what Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're not there already, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. At the end of chapter 8, Paul told the Corinthians, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That passage was about whether it was okay for Christians to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. Paul says that he would avoid meat altogether if he thought it would keep his brothers in Christ from stumbling. Meaning, he would forego the immediate interest of eating meat in order to achieve the higher good of helping his brothers not to stumble in their faith. And he wants the Corinthians to adopt that same attitude that he has towards them. He wants them to adopt that same attitude towards one another. So all of chapter 9 is Paul telling the Corinthians how he has made this, this, uh, this way of being his way of life. And he aims for the Corinthians to follow him in this pattern. So he does this in three steps. Here are the three points this morning. We're going to see in verses 1 through 14 the apostles' rights, the apostles' renunciation in verses 15 through 23, and the apostles' self-discipline in verses 24 to 27. So the apostles' rights, the apostles' renunciation, and the apostles' self-discipline. Now the first thing, verses 1 to 14, is the apostles' rights. Look at verse, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? So Paul asks these series of rhetorical questions, all of which expect an affirmative answer. Yes, Paul is free. Yes, he's an apostle. Yes, he has seen Jesus with his own two eyes on the Damascus Road. And yes, the Corinthians are his workmanship in the Lord. And there's a kind of logic to these rhetorical questions. How do you know that Paul has freedom to eat whatever he wants? Well, you know that because he's an apostle. How do you know that he's an apostle? Because he's a witness to the resurrection of Christ and because he founded the church in Corinth through the apostolic ministry that the Lord Jesus had given to him. So it's very clear that the, the affirmative is the answer to all of these, these questions. Well, look at verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. There may be some people questioning Paul's apostolic authority, but there shouldn't be any question from the Corinthian church. 
Well, why shouldn't they be questioning? Because Paul founded that church. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. Paul preached to them and the Holy Spirit showed up in power and saved them. That's why Paul says that they themselves are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In the first century, if a person wanted to authenticate a document, they would put a wax seal on it. They would put an imprint on the wax with a signet ring. That mark certified the authenticity of the document. In the same way, Paul is saying that the Corinthians' conversion to Christ is the authentic, authentication of his discipleship, of, of his apostleship. He's really an apostle, is, that, that he's really an apostle is evidenced by the fact that they were converted to Jesus and received the Spirit from his ministry. The question, though, is why would his apostleship need that authentication? Well, the answer is that apparently some were calling it into question. Look at verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. There were apparently some who were examining Paul, meaning that they were scrutinizing Paul and raising questions about his authority. I don't know, perhaps his self-limitation, that he wouldn't eat meat, right? He wouldn't eat meat just for these weaker brothers in the congregation. Maybe that self-limitation didn't look very impressive to some of the strong people who were in Corinth. And they may have thought that he looked weak by deferring to the most to the superstitious scruples of the ignorant converts in the congregation. Surely if Paul were a real apostle, he would just tell people what to do. Just eat the meat. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he conforms his behavior to them. And so maybe some of the believers in Corinth are looking at that and they're going, who is this guy? Does he really have all the authority of an apostle? Maybe he doesn't have the freedom to eat because he doesn't have the authority that they previously believed him to have. And so to answer this concern, Paul identifies three areas where he has the right to do something, the authority to do something, but he refrains from doing that thing for a higher good. And those three areas are food, marriage, and financial support. So look what he says in verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Now, the we here, I think Paul's talking about himself and his other apostolic workers. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? It's another rhetorical question that expects an affirmative answer. Yes, he does have the right to eat and drink. And that word translated as right is a word that's often translated as authority. The idea is that a person who has authority also has certain rights that go with that authority. And so he's trying to say that his self-limitation, not eating the meat, should not be taken to imply a lack of authority on his part. Same thing in the next verse. Look what he says in verse 5. Do we not have the right or the authority to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Now, we know from chapter 7, you'll remember, that, that Paul is unmarried. We think he was probably widowed. But Paul says that his unmarried state does not imply that he has no right to be married or he doesn't have the authority to be married. He has a right to take a wife along with him on his apostolic ministry, just like the other apostles, just like the brothers of Jesus, like James and Jude, and just like Peter. All those guys got married. 
Paul's an apostle just like them. He has the authority to do what they do, which means he can get married. But look what he says in verse 6. He moves from food to marriage and now to financial support. He says in verse 6, Or is, only, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Another way to render this in verse 6, maybe a little more literally, he, sa he says it like this, Do Barnabas and I alone, do we not have the right to refrain from work? And the answer, again, is this affirmative yes. Paul and Barnabas have a right not to work. This question stems from the fact that there were um, four ways that, that popular philosophers during Paul's day, how they would support themselves when they would go out teaching, right? And probably the Corinthians were comparing Paul to these other teachers who would come through town. With these other teachers, they could either charge fees to support themselves. They could have a wealthy patron who gave them money. They could beg for money, like the cynics did, the cynic philosophers, or they could work at a trade. Well, we know what Paul did when he came to Corinth. He worked at a trade, and he didn't charge any fees. Okay, Paul says that he and Barnabas had a right not to work and to expect his support to come from the people he ministered to. Of course, he didn't take that right, but he had a right to do that. And so Paul gives several lines of evidence to prove that they had this right to refrain from work. Look what he says in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Soldiers don't pay themselves. They're paid from the treasury of those for whom they fight. A farmer eats from the crops that he farms. A shepherd drinks milk from the flock that he tends. It is an ordinary expectation, and it should be no shock, Paul's saying, that the same pattern would hold for an apostle in his ministry. Paul has a right to expect financial support from the congregations that he ministers to. But Paul's not content merely to appeal to the way things ordinarily take place in the world. He wants to show them that what he's saying is true on divine authority. So look what he says in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Meaning the Old Testament. Moses wrote, doesn't the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. What Paul's trying to say here is that, look, I'm not making this up. He's saying on the authority of God's word in the Old Testament that he has a right to expect to be paid by the congregation to whom he ministers. And he does so by quoting kind of an unexpected verse, Deuteronomy 25.4, which says that even an ox is entitled to eat from the grain that he's grinding. But notice Paul's way of interpretation here. He recognizes that this text in Deuteronomy is not merely about the treatment of animals. In fact, you can read right before verse 4 in Deuteronomy 25, and right after it, it's all about how you treat people. And it looks like Paul is saying, this isn't just about animals. This is about people. So at the second part of verse 9, Paul says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Well, it, it's true. God is concerned about the treatment of oxen in, in Deuteronomy 25, 4. That's why, um, as a matter of fact, I had Colin read Proverbs uh, chapter 12, verse 10, moments ago. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. 
But if God is concerned about oxen, how much more is he concerned about people? And in particular, how much more is he concerned about apostolic missionaries who are out preaching the gospel to the Gentile world? Well, look what he says in verse 10. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. When Paul says for our sake, I think it's tempting to interpret him to mean that he's talking about for the sake of people in general. But I think for our sake means for the sake of those who like me are out preaching the gospel. Why? Because when Paul says, when he talks about the plowman and the thresher in verse 10, he's accessing common imagery for those who preach the gospel. Those who preach the gospel like Paul are understood to be spiritual laborers, sowers, and, and reapers in God's vineyard. Those who sow the word should expect to get their living from the ministry of the word. That's what he's saying in verse 10. We'll look at verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Look at all these rhetorical questions. Now, this one expects the answer no. No, it's not too much to expect that. Those who receive the word should expect to give financial support to those who preach the word to them. What they are giving to you is much more valuable than the money and the support that you're giving to them. It's not too much to ask you to do that. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Answer, yes. If other preachers like Apollos receive support from the Corinthians, how much more does the apostle and founder of the church in Corinth have a right to their financial support? But look what Paul says in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. <clears throat> but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul says he did not make use of this right. Why? Because he thought accepting their money might be an obstacle to the gospel. But why would that be the case? Why would accepting their money be an obstacle to the gospel? <coughs> Excuse me. Recent studies have shown that in the first century, sometimes financial support implied a patron-client relationship, which would put the teacher into the employ of the patron who was giving the money. Paul did not want to be under obligation to the people who were supporting him, to the people that he was teaching. And so he explains in the next paragraph that he wants no such compulsion placed on him. He wants to offer the gospel freely talk about more on that when we get to the next paragraph. But in the meantime, Paul gives two more lines of evidence to establish his right to their support. Look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Again, this is a reference to the Old Testament. He's basing his claim to his rights on the Bible. And in the Old Testament, the priests who offered sacrifices on behalf of God's people were allowed to eat certain portions of the animals 
that were sacrificed. If those ministers under the old covenant were supported by God's people, then certainly new covenant ministers have a right to know less, right? That's the point. And so Paul saves what is perhaps his strongest argument for the last. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The Lord Jesus himself is now who Paul's appealing to. And the Lord Jesus himself on two occasions said that gospel workers should be paid by those to whom they minister. When Jesus sent out the 12 apostles to preach in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said the worker is worthy of his support. When Jesus sent out the 70 in Luke chapter 10 and verse 7, Jesus said the laborer is worthy of his wages. In both cases, talking about those who are out preaching and teaching the gospel. You can't argue with Jesus. There's no higher authority than Jesus. If Jesus says that gospel ministers are to be paid, then congregations must expect to pay their ministers. Now, now think about this. Paul has spent 14 whole verses in this chapter establishing beyond any reasonable doubt that he has a right to expect the congregation to support him financially. But guess what? There's 14 verses of this, right? It's taken a long time in this sermon for me to get through those verses. 14 verses to establish that he has a right. But guess what? That right is not the main point. <laughs> it's the foundation upon which the main point will rest. And that main point will start in, in verse 15. But it's, it's actually not even the main point. But we still need to hear Paul out on this, on this foundational matter before moving on to the main point because it's of enormous practical consequence to us, us here at Kenwood Baptist Church. If you are a church member on the authority of God's word and on the authority of King Jesus himself, all of us as a congregation have an obligation to support the ministry of God's word with our finances. All of us. This is not negotiable. If you are going to be a disciple of Jesus, then you must plan to give a portion of your money to support the ministry of the word that Jesus has commissioned. You need to provide, in particular, a living for the ministers who bring the, the word of God to you. It says, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now, when people hear that, the question immediately arises, how much am I obligated to give? That's a great question. And I want to say, say three things to answer that, that question. First thing I want to say this is this. Make sure that when you give that your attitude is right. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7 says this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Which means you got to give because you want to give, not because you have to give. If you believe in the gospel, that belief is going to show in how you cheerfully support the ministry of the gospel. And in particular, the ministry of the gospel in your own church. So check your attitude about giving. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. 
Second thing is this. Make sure that your giving doesn't come with unbiblical expectations. Unfortunately, there are some people who think that because they give, the minister is now somehow their lackey. That the minister is somehow beholden to the biggest givers in the church. That's a temptation for the givers. That's a temptation for ministers. And so some people who give that way think that they've entered into this kind of a patron-client relationship with the preacher, and now that preacher has to do and defer to them. No. The preacher has to do what God says in his word. Your support means that you expect him to do what God's word says, quite apart from trying to defer to the, to the givers in the church. So don't have unbiblical expectations about what your giving does. Third thing I want to say is this. How much should you give? Well, there's no set amount in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, in the early church, it says that they, they all held everything in common, which means they regarded all of their belongings, all of their money, everything belonged to the church. That's the way that they did it in the, early, in the book of Acts. All their worldly goods belonged to Christ. In the Old Testament, the people of God gave a tenth of all that they made to support the Old Covenant ministry. The tithe is not technically commanded in the New Testament, but many Christians over the centuries have viewed the tithe as kind of the starting point of New Testament stewardship. I personally believe that that's a good and a wise practice. Our statement of faith says it this way. According to the scriptures, Christians should contribute of their means cheerfully, regularly, systematically, proportionately, and liberally for the advancement of the Redeemer's cause on earth. And that stewardship starts right here at your local church. So Paul's right to expect financial support for his ministry and the implication that all churches should expect to give financial support to gospel ministry. Um, we need to hear that. Paul takes 14 verses to say it, to establish the right. We need to hear that. But again, Paul's rights are not the main point of this passage. So verses 1 through 14 are the apostles' rights. But verses 15 through 23 is the apostles' renunciation. Because guess what? He renounces his right. Everybody look at verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to, to secure any such provision. After all that insistence that he had a right to their support, now Paul says that he doesn't want it. He never asked it of them, and he's not asking it from them now. Go back and read what Paul did when he came to Corinth for the first time in Acts chapter 18. When he first came to Corinth, he supported himself by taking up a trade of tent making. That's how he was supported. He supported himself. After doing that for a number, for I don't know how many Sabbaths, but a number of Sabbath days, Silas and Timothy, who were in Macedonia, finally catch up with Paul and join Paul in Corinth. And it looks like they brought provision from Macedonia, from those churches, to support the ministry. And at that point, on the support of somebody else's provision, Paul gives up his trade of tent making and devotes himself completely to the ministry of the word. 
He never asked the Corinthians for anything, and he's not asking them for anything now. Why? Well, look at verse 15. He says, For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And it's, it's hard to bring this out in English because Paul sort of starts a sentence and then kind of cuts off. It, literally, he says something like, it would be better for me to die than no one will deprive me of my reason for boasting. That's the way he expresses it. His reason for boasting is that he's able to offer the gospel free of charge. That's what he wants more than he wants a payday from the, the Corinthian church. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul has no grounds for boasting when he preaches the gospel. Why? Because he has to do it. Necessity has been laid upon him by God. Paul, when he preaches, he's like Jeremiah of old who said that God's word was like a fire shut up in his bones and he could not hold it in. If Paul fails to preach the gospel, woe will come upon him from God. He has to preach the gospel because he's under obligation from God himself. He has no ground for boasting. He's doing what he's required to do when he preaches the gospel. Look at verse 17. For if I do this of my own will... I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. It's a little uh, confusing at first blush, but what's going on here is Paul's comparing the work of a free person versus the work of a slave. A free person works voluntarily of his own will, and when a free person works, he deserves a reward or a wage. Paul says, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But that's not how Paul works. He's not working as a free person. That's not the kind of work he does. Paul is not a free person, but a slave of Christ. In that sense, he does not preach the gospel voluntarily or of his own will, but as a man under compulsion. He has a stewardship entrusted to him, but it's a stewardship of a slave. And he should not expect any pay for that because he's a slave of Jesus. So look at verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul doesn't want to be like those traveling philosophers who are like mercenaries accepting fees for their teaching and sometimes entering into this patron-client relationship with their hearers. No, Paul says that his reward is to offer the gospel free of charge. He has a right to their support, but he doesn't make use of that right, in this case, for a higher good. The progress of the gospel in Corinth. As it turns out, Paul lives his whole life in this way. He subordinates his own rights and freedoms to the progress of the gospel. There are many things that Paul had a right to do, but that he doesn't do for the sake of the gospel. Many things that he could do, but that wisdom says that he shouldn't do for the sake of the gospel. So look what he says in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win more of them. 
Paul is an apostle. He has enormous authority and freedom as an apostle. But he is an apostle of whom? Of Jesus. And Jesus made himself a servant to complete his mission, which means that Paul is going to have to make himself a servant to complete his mission. Paul's just doing what Jesus did. He's making himself a servant of all so that he can win them to the gospel. And that means that his own needs, his own tastes, his own preferences take a back seat to the needs and the tastes and the preferences of those that he's trying to reach. So Paul says in verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win to the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul had no problem adopting the ways of the Jews when he was trying to reach Jews. Do you remember how Paul raises a great big stink in Galatians chapter two about not yielding to those who were insisting on circumcision? Remember that? They were saying you got to be circumcised to be saved. Paul saying, we're not going to yield to those people who are saying that. And yet look what Paul does when he's actually out preaching to Jews in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 and verse 3. Paul meets this young Christian man named Timothy. He wants to take Timothy with him on his second missionary journey. But Timothy's uncircumcised. And Paul says, Timothy, you're going to have to get circumcised. What about all this business in Galatians about nobody having to be circumcised? Well, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, but you've got to be circumcised to go on mission because they'll listen to us if you'll get circumcised. We'll get a hearing with the Jews if you get circumcised, Timothy. Paul wanted to get that hearing with the Jews, so Timothy, as an adult, had to get circumcised. Not because circumcision saves, but because circumcision, in this instance, advances the gospel. To the Jews, I became like the Jews. That's what that was. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, meaning it's not like I'm an antinomian. Jesus is still my Lord and we obey all of his commands. I became as one outside the law, not, but, um, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. So Paul adopts the ways of Gentiles sometimes in order to win the Gentiles. So go look at Acts chapter 17. Look at how Paul speaks to the philosophers on Mars Hill, pagan Gentile philosophers. He makes like he's a philosopher. He starts explaining to them who the unknown God is that they have an altar to. He quotes one of their poets saying that we are all his offspring, trying to explain to them that actually, no, there is one creator God. In a sense, he becomes like them so he can reach them with the gospel. He changes his methods without changing his message. He builds bridges to people instead of burning them over cultural differences that are neither here nor there as far as the gospel is concerned. So to the Jews, he became like a Jew. To the Gentiles, he became like a Gentile. In verse 22, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And now Paul is revealing in verse 22 that he has not changed the subject from chapter 8. Remember, he ended chapter 8 talking about the weak people 
in Corinth whose consciences might be wounded by eating certain kinds of meat. Meat that Paul presumably had a right to eat. And now he's saying, I had a right to eat that meat, but I set aside that right because I wanted to reach these people with the gospel. I wanted the gospel to flourish in them, and I didn't want to, to hinder them in any way. So if not eating meat helps them, I'll never eat meat again. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Everything that Paul does in his life and ministry is calculated to achieve maximum impact for the gospel. Even if it means hardships on himself. He subordinates his preferences and even his rights Things that biblically he had a right to. He subordinates all that to the progress of the gospel. Where does Paul get this from? You remember what Moses did when it came to his rights? Moses could have been a ruler of Egypt as a member of Pharaoh's household. He had a right to reign as Egyptian royalty. But then what did Moses do? By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Hebrews chapter 11, 24 and 26. Moses had a right to do something, but he didn't do it because of a higher good. He set aside his rights because he was looking to the real reward which was having Jesus. Sounds like somebody else we know, doesn't it? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus had a right to destroy sinners in judgment, yet Jesus did not press this right. Why? Because he was going for the higher good which was exaltation on the other side of a bloody cross. If this is the way that Moses and Paul, and especially if this is the way of Jesus, then how can it not be the way for all of us? That means that you and I have to stop ordering our lives around our rights. What we think we have authority and freedom to do. We have to start ordering our lives around what we need to do so that the gospel can flourish in the lives of as many people as possible. And we need to do so even if it's costly to us. Even if it routinely means giving up our preferences and tastes. So here's the question. How many of us are living our lives this way? In your home? in the way you relate to your spouse and to your kids? Is it always your way or the highway? Do you make everybody else's needs and preferences subordinate to yours? Or do you lay yours down for them? 
in your relationships with your roommates? Is it always your way of the highway? At your work, do you try to make everybody else toe the line with your tastes and preferences and rights? Or are you willing to forego those things out of love for others? If you are unwilling to set aside what you want for the sake of others, you will never do what it takes to see the gospel advance. Because that's how it advances. By people living their lives exactly like Jesus lived his life. Giving up what they have a right to do so that the good news can go forth. That's what we're called to. So Paul is announcing in verses 1 through 14, he has rights. Verses 15 through 23, he renounces his rights for their sake, for the sake of the Corinthians that he's preaching to. The last thing is this. The the apostle's self-discipline, verses 24 to 27. Quickly, let's look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now the imagery here is coming from this enormous athletic festival held in Corinth every two years called the Isthmian Games. And the Isthmian Games in the first century was this athletic event that was second only in importance to the Olympic Games themselves in Athens. And Paul makes an analogy to two different sports that were um, a part of those games, running and boxing. This is not upward running and boxing. Athletes in these contests compete to win the prize. They don't want second. They don't want third. They want to win the prize, and they want the wreath on their head. And Paul says that we are to run our race also in order to win. That's how he's running his race. He wants us to run our race in the same way. We don't want a participation trophy at the end of our race. We want the prize, which is the imperishable wreath called eternal life. That's what we want. We don't want anything less than that, right? But how do you get that prize? Paul says that you have to train for it. You discipline your body for it. Which means you don't indulge every bodily urge that you have. You set aside bodily pleasures in the present so that you can have the higher pleasure of the prize at the end of the competition. It means you don't insist on all your wants and needs. You set those aside for something better. Paul says that he disciplines his body and keeps it under control lest he be disqualified from the race. But keep in mind what the context is here. Paul's not just talking about self-discipline generically. He's talking about the self-discipline required so that he can put aside his own rights and preferences so that the gospel might go forth into other people's lives. He's talking about whether or not he's going to set aside his own interests in order to pursue their interests. Which means he's really just talking about love, isn't he? Paul disciplines his body out of love for other people. If Paul can't set aside his own interests in order to serve others for the sake of the gospel, then he is disqualified, not just from a race, but from being a follower of Christ altogether. 
Those are the stakes here. At least that, that's how Paul understood the stakes. If I'm unwilling to set aside my own interests, I can't really follow Jesus at all. I don't want to be disqualified after having preached to people. Do you see what's at stake in this for us? If you can't bring yourself to set aside your own interests for the sake of others, you can't follow Jesus, period. It's kind of all about that. That's not like an extra thing in Christianity. That, that's what it is. It's giving up your own interests for the sake of others, just like Jesus did for you. The only way to follow him is to live your life in the way that he did. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is now no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Which means Paul thought the whole Christian life was just living Jesus' life over again. It's not any less than that for us. Paul says he has rights, but Paul says he renounces those rights. But to renounce those rights, it requires self-discipline. It requires setting aside things that you want. It means setting aside even things that you think you have a right to. Are you doing that with your life? Do you love the gospel so much that that is like second nature to you? That's what Paul's saying that he did. That's what Jesus did. He's saying that's what we have to do. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you know that. The Bible says that there's good news for you. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life, which means God sent his only son into the world who lived a perfect life on our behalf. He was crucified unjustly at the hands of sinners. He died. After three days, he was raised again from the dead. His death purchases our forgiveness from sins. His raising to life guarantees that God will raise us to life and give us eternal life. You can have this good news of the gospel applied to you, not by anything that you have done, but just by believing in Jesus, turning from your sin and believing in Jesus. If you haven't done that, you should do that today. Let me pray for you. Father, use this word to transform us into the image of your own dear son, Jesus. Father, we pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.